This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm Scott Barrow, Three Pillars Chief Evangelist. And for this episode of the show, we're going to explore testing the commercial viability of ideas. Among the topics we'll cover are why great ideas alone aren't nearly enough to drive innovation, why testing ideas with users and incorporating user feedback and insight is a must for high-performing product teams, and why going low or no fidelity is often a far better option for companies than developing an MVP. I'm joined for this episode by two seasoned colleagues at Three Pillar, Michael Rabjohns and Stephen Cooper. Michael is our global head of user experience research and design and has more than two decades in the digital product space. He's worked with companies ranging from startups to enterprise, including companies like Marriott, Calvin Klein, and Sapient Nitro, just to name a few. Stephen Cooper is a lead UX designer at Three Pillar in Michael's group. With several successful product launches to his credit, he has consulted and led teams at Accenture, Microsoft, Salesforce, Facebook, and Google. Our discussion originally took place as a webinar, and we're happy to share the recording with you today. If you'd like to see the slides we cover and other resources we touch on during the discussion, please visit the link in the show notes. Now let's dive in to Applied Innovation, How to Test the Commercial Viability of an Idea. So just first off, like why, why is this such an important uh, concept, uh, testing commercial viability? I, I think if I had to guess, pretty much everybody in our audience, and certainly I and, and uh, my, panel, my co-panelists here, have worked in environments where uh, executive have, executives have lots of ideas um, or stakeholders have lots of ideas about features or products. And oftentimes, the ones that get selected do not get selected based on a rigorous process, but really based on some sort of politics or, or other, other means. And too few of us have worked in environments that have real rigor or machinery for vetting ideas and really making sure that we're betting on the high quality ones and starving the ones that are, that are lower quality. Just as importantly, we we believe here at Three Pillar um, and and the people that we work with, the clients that we work with, believe that you know the next generation of successful products and the businesses that are are supporting those products will have to have this kind of capability. This this a way of directing resources towards high value ideas, ones that resonate with users and deliver a benefit to the business. So in this webinar, we're going to be covering a few different topics. What is commercial viability? why testing is vital to modern business, tips for engaging stakeholders and investors, that can be particularly useful, patterns and anti-patterns in testing, and um, the, the popular topic of practical techniques and tooling, do's and don'ts from our own uh, experience in this area. Joining me today are the two gentlemen that you see on your screen, two rock stars of Three Pillar, Michael Rabjohns, uh, Global UX Practice Leader. Uh, Michael, you want to introduce yourself a bit in terms of Sure. Scott said, I'm head of UX at Three Pillar, about 20 plus years of experience in digital space. Uh, I used to work for Scott, but I've pretty much recovered from that, I think. And I have the pleasure of uh, being Stephen's manager. I haven't recovered from that. Stephen, over to you. Nice to meet you. Well, my name is Stephen Cooper. I'm thrilled to be here today with this panel to discuss a topic that I'm really passionate about. Throughout my years of experience, I have had the honor of working with some of the most renowned uh, companies and professionals on, e on this industry. But I have also worked with startups, helping them to innovate by design. So super excited about this conversation. 
Yeah, and, and uh, Stephen, I'm glad you brought up the word innovation. And and the the topic, the series that we're on is applied innovation. And it's probably worth just making sure that we're all on the same page in terms of what innovation is. Innovation is applying new or old techniques in, to generate new value. Um, and that's really important, I think, in our industry. A lot of times we fall in love you know, now currently today, chat GPT is all the rage. Everyone's talking about it. And certainly inventions can catalyze uh, new value opportunities. There's no question. But you can apply old technologies to create new value. And and so that's one of the things that we do both. But we certainly do uh, a really good job of, of trying to mine for insights into users where they're going to find value. So beyond innovation, let's talk about commercial viability. What makes something commercially viable? Commercial viability is the intersection of business viability and customer desirability. And so what we mean by that is, is we're looking for a something that users or customers would part with something they value in order to use your thing. That may be time or money, or it could be something else. Uh, it could be information, personal data, right? But they're going to give up something in exchange for being able to use your product. And, and that that value, that, that the thing that, that those users or customers are willing to give up is valuable enough to sustain a business. So you'll notice that we're not talking today about feasibility. That's the third part of the triangle. You certainly would want to make sure that your idea is technically feasible, but there's another set of techniques for testing that. What we're focused on here is commercial viability and that intersection of business viability and um, customer desirability. Uh, sometimes customers really desire a solution for something, but they are not willing to part with enough value to make it uh, a business. Um, and so uh, it's really important to keep both of those factors in mind and not not over-index on what makes a viable business or over-index on what, what customers want. It's worth mentioning in the space, um, there's a wide array of frameworks that have, have been spouted. And I know from talking to, to several clients and prospects that it gets dizzying. There's design thinking, there's jobs to be done, there's Lean, and that's in addition to all the agile frameworks, Safe, Scrum, Kanban. There's a there's a lot of jargon in our industry. We're going to stay away from jargon here in this uh, in this conversation and really try to focus in on what's important to take away as a as a non practitioner about how to get to viability of your idea to take to market and, and move forward on. One other concept that I will mention here that I, I, I found very interesting to this conversation is product market fit. This, coin, this term was coined by Mark Andreessen in, of, of Silicon Valley fame. There's not really a, a strong definition for what product market fit is. Um, so it's not, we, we, we come to this topic with some confusion and our stakeholders do honestly, because it is, not a, it is not a clear, like if you are able to achieve this metric, you've nailed it. It's not quite that, that, uh, that clear cut which even makes it more important that, that your exploration of this is full of some humility and curiosity. Those are things that, that we'll talk about how to take that humility and curiosity, turn it into an action plan, and then and, and make progress against your idea. So again, I think this sort of restates what I had said before, customer desirability and business viability. This is what we're, we're looking for is the intersection of these two things. On the business viability, I just, I did want to double down on the value that you're planning to harvest has to be enough to justify investment. And this is one of the things that I, from talking to, to various prospects is really important, setting up stage gates for ideas so that you have a reason to believe that you have enough confidence that this is the ROI is sufficient to justify the investment. These ideas are very rarely cheap. Um, working with technology as I have, 
Uh, I've often pointed out I would love to do an A-B test on two different teams, see which one could execute on the idea better. No one uh, has taken me up on that, um, that dare. Uh, it's too expensive. So given that what we do is so expensive, it is really important to, to have, have those stage gates. So let's jump into the meat of the conversation. I've talked too much. So testing um, as a concept and testing commercial viability is, is, is hugely important to, to modern business. And so I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to just make a bold statement and ask Michael and Stephen to comment on this. All product and feature ideas are hypotheses poorly framed. So we've worked with a lot of clients who uh, claim that they know their users well. And in many cases, they, they, they do know their customers pretty well at a high level. For example, uh, Trex, uh, they hired us to um, research, design, and build a tool to design a deck that would go on the back of your house. They really did have, and they had two primary user types, and they understood them quite well. When we looked at the demographic um, profiles of the first people that we interviewed and compared them to what Trex already had, they aligned really well. But that is nowhere near that that high level demographic information is uh, unlikely unlikely to be enough to know is this product a good fit for them, and as we'll talk about later, it's so in, inexpensive to find that out. Like, why wouldn't you just go ask them? You'll get an answer very quickly. Um, beyond that, Scott, and this is this might be a topic for a later webinar. Further things are, okay, you understand what makes them tick, but is that enough for you to go out and design this product and really nail it? Uh, for example, the navigation, in this particular example from Trex, the flow, you really think you understand the way they approach designing and building a deck. Um, and another example, this would be Scott from um, a firm, Northern Virginia, about $700 million a year. We worked on a concept for them. They came in with a hypothesis. Scott, you can tell me when to stop. Uh, they came in with a hypothesis that there were four areas of functionality that were valuable to their user set. And this had to do with supply chain management. And we were able to determine in a matter of weeks that of those four, two, some slight interest, two of them were killer interest. Uh, like, yes, these are where you want to focus. So generally, Stakeholders like that might be right in like, hey, we know roughly what someone who's good enough to build his or her own deck. Sure. High level understanding. Yes. Uh, a good enough understanding to to like produce a winning design and a winning feature set and to be sure that, yes, there's there's going to be demand for this product. People are going to pay, as you talked about, you know, money and time and so forth. Uh, no, generally not. Stephen, what about you? Yeah, um, I think companies used to believe that all they needed to do was writing a business plan, persuading investors, uh, raising money, and just executing for the plan. And I, I think it used to work like that, or a few people got really lucky and managed to build a successful business with that formula. But I think it's common for organizations to fall into a trap of believing that great ideas alone are enough to drive innovation. Uh, and I think reality, in reality, execution is what truly matters. 
Um, so at the very beginning, uh, most companies are just uh, faith-based business. Um, in the the faster they get to put those ideas into test, the faster they're going to realize or identify which ones are worth the fight and which one they have to discard. And that's something that we call pivot and persevere on the lean space. Um, so I think the faster you do that, uh, the better for your business. Well, and, and and one of the things that I, I have found, and actually I, I borrowed this from uh, um, a podcast guest we had, uh, Josh Seiden, talking about out, um, outcomes over outputs. But he had these magic questions that he suggested to really to get executives to reframe their idea as a hypothesis. Um, and and it's not you're you're nudging them towards hypothesis because if you can get them to admit that it's a hypothesis that they have a, they have a thesis um, at all, then you can inject the room for doubt and curiosity and therefore room for research. Um, and so that that's one thing that I, I try to do early on in the process because as as you, you you've seen the snowball right um, you know and and the more gates that an executive has to overcome to get their idea funded the less they want to hear that you think you should go for testing. Um, so it's really important to re- try to re- get that reframing in as early as possible. Um, that's just something that I found with my stakeholders. It is totally fine to have an idea. You just have to know you're guessing. It's okay. Um, you, it's an educated guess, but it's still a guess. And so let's, let's, let's see if we can apply some. Uh, and, and I may not be successful all the time in getting them to do that reframing, but I can find that can be really really um, open up the conversation to alternative paths to just fund me and, and let's go build it. So let me make another statement and get your reaction to this. Um, understanding your users and customers better than your competition gives you a competitive advantage that will outlast and outperform great ideas or even cutting edge technology. Agree or disagree? Stephen, I'll start with you this time. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And this is, a really bold statement. Uh, having worked on this field for a while um, and invested so many time uh, researching about these topics, uh, I have found out that both successful and failed companies uh, face similar challenges. Uh, and the main difference is how they deal with this and how willing they are to learn from their mistake to stay competitive and relevant in the market. Because the other option is simply this fear, right? Uh, successful teams and companies share to have like a common trait and it's their ability to learn quickly from their users and to put um, those collected insights uh, or use those collected insights to create hypotheses, uh, create assumptions and put them to the test. Um, so I think that's the only way to stay alive in today's competitive market. Nowadays, it's easier than ever to create a business. Um, so it's not only about how to start, but also how to keep the flame alive. Uh, based in my experience, I think that as soon as the learning spirit from companies dies, um, they're doomed for failure. So I think managers, uh, have to create like safe spaces for researchers to go ahead and make unbiased questions uh, that bring new insights to the table to help us identify if it's time to pivot or if it's worth to um, persevere on this space. 
Excellent. Michael? Yeah, agree. Um, users don't adopt technology for technology's sake. It's because of the value that it's providing to them. Um, and also the most sophisticated uh, or even expensive technological solution might be overkill. Like, um, uh, Scott, if you recall, we did work for LiveX. They're an international wine trading platform, sort of like a stock trading platform just for fine wine. And they thought uh, they needed... <laughs> yeah, uh, wonderful people. Um, they thought that they needed a mobile app to meet uh, the needs of their uh, particular needs of their users, which was, hey, when this Chateau Dion, you know, hits a certain price, let me know. So because I'll go, I will buy it. And um, what we concluded uh, was actually, no, we can just generate a, a text message. So was that the most sophisticated technological solution that we could have built? No, certainly not. But it, it delivered exactly what the users wanted. And for the business, even better, because it was something they could get to market uh, faster and at a lower cost. So yep. there you go. Again, if we come back to innovation is about delivering value. I think that was a that's a wonderful illustration of that. Like, you know, we can we could do something really fancy. Um, you know, and in fact, I believe LiveX even came to us with the ask, like, we need a mobile app. And we're like, we don't think you need a mobile app. Um, which actually won us a, a lot of trust with uh, the buyer who had been with us for quite some time, which was great. But um, but it's a good reminder, like get a, keep us focused on value, not on the technology. It's easy for us to all fall into the technology trap, um, but keeping them on the on the why. In fact, you know, one one other thing I'll, I'll add to this because you know, both of you kind of um, had this buried in, in what you were talking about in terms of the importance of testing. But um, I oftentimes will use this example of knowing where to put the "Are you sure?" modals. Um, you know, you know, if they're everybody's seen these, like, and you click on submit, and then you get the "Are you sure?" button, and it's like, well, why would I have clicked the submit button if I wasn't sure? But it turns out if it's a high stakes moment, for example, I'm wiring money out of my bank account, I really appreciate you saying, if you're, are you sure? Because the money's gone after this. Um, and then I might click back out, double check that I got the right, I'm sending it to the right place. Um, but if it's where, somewhere where like, you know, like let's say login, uh, are you sure you want to log in? Oh, that's a complete waste. That's just an extra click, like totally useless, low stakes moments. Go ahead and log me in if my credentials were successful. Um, and I use that as an example, obviously an absurd example, but I think there's a lot more places in, in the products we build where those moments matter. And without a mental model, an enriching mental model of what our users are doing with, with the products we're building um, and what's a high stakes moment versus a low stakes moment for them, um, then we can't build really good products and product experiences. Um, so I'm gonna make a, an, another statement. I'm, I'm in the statement game um, for some reason, but. Um, another statement, this is more on the business side, that increases in investment should follow increases in confidence. So this comes back to the idea of stage gates, that we would be building confidence and ideas. Because one of the one of the th challenges behind this kind of as context, so I was at a large Fortune 50 company, and the problem wasn't a lack of ideas. It was too many ideas and not knowing which ones to green light. And how do, so then, of course, you know, the obvious answer is, well, let's make everybody do a business case but half the business cases are fiction. So how do we put in place a process that allows us to increase confidence while we're invest increasing investment? What, what, are, what are your thoughts on that, that problem? 
Michael, we'll start with you again. So our our perspective is that um, it's it's absolutely something you want to do. And I may be getting ahead of myself for another slide, but I hope Scott will forgive me. Um, a lot of product people, product owners, product managers, chief product officers have the decision to make of I have this much money and I have this much time. Um, so their question would be, can I afford to test the viability of my product? Can I spend that time and money on research? I would turn that question around and say, can you afford not to? Um, uh, first, in the sense of would you think about all the effort, the money, um, that you in time that you will put into building and, and launching a given product? Um, do you really want to do that based on a hunch? Like, yeah, we think or or this or that executive thinks there's demand for this. Um, what's that going to mean for your company if the product fails? Maybe you're already lagging. Come in, Scott. You know, I'm stealing this from you. Uh, full disclosure, uh, maybe a competitor is already ahead of you. Well, how much farther ahead will that competitor be after your product launch tanks? Similarly, even for you, um, is this going to cost you your job? Is this going to cost you your promotion or, you know, kind of damage your, your reputation at the company? So uh, for all those reasons, yes, we, we absolutely recommend testing uh, a viability of a product. That's particularly the case nowadays. I was talking with Scott over the last couple of days about this, and there's never been a better time to, to test uh, a product idea, a concept. Uh, the reason for that is there are tools available now, platforms and so forth, and we'll talk in, in a few minutes a little bit more about them, that we could have only dreamed about 10 or 15 years ago. Like these just didn't exist or they were uh, far more rudimentary. And if you say, well, what has been the impact of those tools? It's been phenomenal. The cost of testing, both not only in dollars, but in terms of effort, has gone way, way down. Um, the, the speed at which you can execute this testing, and I'll talk about a little bit more about that in a second as well, has come way, way down. And so the ROI is so high. There's so much value for all of you as, as product people, managers, um, you know, uh, chief product officers. Like, it, it, in my opinion, this is the best money you will ever spend in in on your product. Um, you you won't, I really doubt you'll get a higher ROI on anything else. And Scott, um, you may want to jump in here because I'm stealing this from you too. Scott has talked a lot about how this de-risks your product. Or I've, I the way I've uh, talked about that is when you launch a product, users will put it to the test. All of us have done this. All of us do this all the time. You'll download a new app and you say, all right, do I like it? Do I not? Am I going to continue using it or not? Uh, in many cases, am I willing to pay for this or not? You as the product owner, you have a great deal of choice about when that testing begins. In the bad old days, 10 or 15, 20 years ago, we would really not do any testing. We would, I think Stephen talked about this, we would just launch it. And then we would find out. Don't recommend that. Um, nowadays, you can vet so many aspects of your product, both from at the highest level, which we're here to talk about today, is there a market fit for this? Will people be interested in it? Will they be willing to give up 
money for it, for the value they're getting from it, all the way down to you know the particular areas of functionality, the feature set, the design, all that can be tested so quickly and relatively cheaply that it's it's a phenomenal uh, phenomenal ROI that you'll see from it. So probably a long answer for you, Scott, but those are my no, two. No, I, I, I well that was great, and and I mean you know <laughs> you've quoted me on some of these things here, but. But but I think that one of the things that people lose sight of is that you're probably going to, you know, and, and Stephen talked about this, the theme of, of learning as, as, is critical to staying relevant. Um, and I, and I, do, I, I do believe that is true, whether you're learning about, you know, specifics of user cohorts within your target market or um, there's a number of nuances to mine for as, as you become a more sophisticated product company. Um, and a lot of people stop that learning because uh, they they think, oh, we've got product market fit. We're done learning. We don't need to do that. We just need to execute now. Um, but um, but I, I definitely have found that what's, what the critical moment is not the MVP, but it is the time between MVP and product market fit. Because chances are your, M, your first uh, production version of your product is not going to be the one that that achieves product market fit. It's going to be close. Hopefully, hopefully you did your work early and, and you you're on the right track, but you will not necessarily have nailed it. And and that's the tricky part because that's where you have to pivot and say, okay, well, our initial idea was good, not great, um, based on the results. So what did we miss? If you've done no testing up until then, you're sort of you're you're in you're in, you're back into the hypothesis black hole, and now there's real urgency to to do something to build more on top of your ignorance. And and I think if you have done testing along the way, you can pivot now with higher quality of hypotheses. Like, oh, we heard a couple of comments that suggest this is more, this may be more important. This aspect may be more important than we originally gave it weight. Um, Stephen, any any thoughts you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I think like you mentioned before, uh, most businesses start with hypotheses, um, and I think. All of these years on the field has taught me that uh, it's really critical for companies to remove subjectivity from the decision making. Uh, and I think this is where uh, leveraging from a more scientific approach to decision making can be really, really useful. Um, because the whole idea is to try to fail cheap, fast, and often. Uh, why? Because basically, the sooner you get your ideas to the market instead of investing many years just to realize that your product is not meeting the, the market demands, the easier for you is going to be to understand when it's a good time to move on or to bring new ideas to the table. Uh, and there is something called the lean method. I think you already mentioned it, but basically the whole idea is uh, to put these ideas into the feedback uh, loop uh, and to use uh, the gain knowledge um, to discard the, the bad ones um, as rapidly as possible and focus the resources on the good ones. I think most companies uh, are, or do understand the, the necessity of moving fast, uh, but most of them lack a method on how to do that. A method that they can buy into and that they have confidence in. I think that's one of, and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get into stakeholders, because um, I think there's some really good insights that, uh, that you all have discovered in, in terms of ways to do this uh, um, effectively and build that confidence beyond you as a researcher, but also bring others along. 
But one one thing I did want to point out, and lean lean, there's I have had nits to pick with lean. Um, Eric Reese and, and the lean folks conflate, in my in my opinion, prototypes and MVPs. When a builder or a product manager or even an executive says MVP, they almost always mean production product, um, your first your your early version of the product. And I've seen the word MVP weaponized by executives. We'll just do an MVP and we'll find out. Um, but the most expensive way to test an idea is to build a, build a first production version. You're better off going with what what I and I have a very strict definition about these things. Go with prototypes. Prototypes are meant to facilitate learning and user testing and feedback, and then they are meant to be thrown away. And then you go into and you build your first version. The viable and minimal viable product MVP, um, in my mind, has to be production viable, and your prototypes don't have to be. So you can cut a ton of corners. Um, I love paper prototypes. I know Michael, you'll talk a little bit about. You know, you can get a ton of value from very low fidelity. Um, but um, but I think it's really important that we in this webinar draw a clear distinction between MVPs, which are production viable products, early version production products, and prototypes, which are meant for learning and testing only. You, no matter how clickable and how high fidelity they are, um, they're still meant to be thrown away. So with that, let's uh, let's pivot into an, a really great story. Um, um, and I know Michael, you were personally involved in this. Um, we we did some work with a, a major clothing retailer, uh, Phil Van Heusen, PVH. Um, and and why don't you tell us a story? Like how did we we went from not sure what we were going to do to a working app in a short amount of time? Uh, tell us some tell us that story. Sure. So uh, PVH is the mothership um, of Calvin Klein, uh, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, and several other brands. Um, they hired us to research, design, and build a mobile app, uh, uh, sorry, build and launch in about 13 weeks. And uh, a lot of people at PVH figured, yeah, that's never going to happen. Like, there's no way we were going to be able to achieve that. Um, so that was the ask and it was a great example. In fact, just to be clear, dur during the sale, it was clear that there was an internal dare going on. This cannot be done. You cannot deliver something of value in that amount of time. Um, and you know, so you basically had executives like you know squaring off, and Three Pillar was the let's see if you can do it. <laughs> so go yep. ahead. Precisely. Um, fortunately, we were. Ignorant, probably of at least a little bit of that. Anyways, so this was a great example of what you can achieve um, through through testing in a very short amount of time. Um, so, and there's a number of reasons for that. I mentioned earlier how the cost has come way down. One of the reasons for that, um, relative to perceptions that a lot of uh, people may have in the marketplace, is uh, the number of people that you need to talk to. They may say, well, hey, you know, you're going to go need to talk to 50 or 100 or 200 people or something like that. Uh, no, you don't. Typically, for the deep qualitative research that we do uh, in this type of product development, you per round of research, you would need to talk to on average six people. Um, if you had multiple user types like we did with Trex, where we had uh, two Oh, okay. You may want to talk to five primary and three secondary people by uh, user types per round. That's it. 
Reason being, economically, you will derive little advantage from talking to further people per round. Um, you will start to hear the same things. We are typically looking for patterns, priorities, and pain points, and you'll start to hear the same things again from person nine and beyond, so to speak. So that's one of the things. That's one of the reasons why this this kind of testing might be a lot less expensive and go a lot faster than you think. Um, so in this particular case, um, we went to Calvin Klein's store, uh, spent a day there interviewing a bunch of people that work there and the manager. Um, this app that we were building was for them to, um, to use to help people like us walk into a Calvin Klein store and say, hey, do you have this sweater in this other color or can I get it at a nearby store, that sort of thing. So um, to give an example of what I mean by speed, uh, this was an unusually fast one, so consider that a disclaimer. We did the testing on a Tuesday, and I had the results tabulated by, by noon or two in the afternoon the following day. So, and by the results, what we were really after is the feature set. So it wasn't about testing the viability in this case, it was the feature set, but we were able to answer that in 16 business hours or less. Um, as someone who worked at e-commerce at Marriott, I would consider that in, incredibly fast. Like if I were back in my old role as a product person, like, wow, you can answer such an important question for my product in 16 business hours. That's, that's pretty amazing. So, um, and, and Michael, yeah. just for the, since we want to make sure we spend extra time on tools and techniques, um, let's try to, we'll try to shorten the story just a little bit. Oh, you're killing me. Um, one <laughs> other thing that's got, Scott, well, actually, I'll save it for later. It's on another slide. But these are examples of, of various exercises we went through with folks at Calvin Klein. But um, true, but low really, <laughs> yep, true. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But but yes, you don't always need to do high fidelity. Okay, you can keep on going. Next slide. And here you can see the iterations as we moved from. Uh, the the, uh, the low fidelity through mid fidelity and then up to full color pixel perfect. Yeah, and one of the things that I'll just add to this: so the success of this was so compelling that um, that that we were asked to replicate this for another another brand in in operating in Japan. What was interesting is when we did that, we did not do research, um, and it's very possible that the 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 architecture and everything uh, was was flexible enough to to allow for us to, to do that and to replicate uh, the functionality. The question that I, I, I still have today is, did we replicate the success? Um, and it's possible there are nuances to, uh, you know, another brand, not Calvin Klein, but uh, Tommy Hilfiger in, in Japan. In that context, that might've been different enough that that, that would have affected how we would have designed um, that, that app. There were some back office differences that we had to account for in technology, um, but <clears throat> but um, we did not do the equivalent uh, user research, and and I I often wonder if that wasn't a, a miss um, that we could have could have gotten that, that better. But um, in the end, the client client was happy, so all's well that ends well. Um, but it was a great, uh, huge success of going from not really sure what we're going to build, finding something of value, and executing it. So let's let's go on and talk um, talk about the the challenges with uh, internal stakeholders. We'll start with them. I know it's a little bit out of order. Um, but 
you know, I, I was a product manager for most of my career. And the biggest problem that I had were my stakeholders. Um, I know it seems weird, um, but, you know, stakeholders are used to telling people in my role what to do, what to build. Um, this is what we need from you, Scott. You need to tell us when you can have it done. And so even if I did testing and I got some results, I would run into, uh, you know, these frequent objections. And one of them you already mentioned, like, did you test with enough people? You need to test with hundreds, not six. Um, so that was a common one, but you've addressed that. And then, and then there was always a lot of skepticism, like, are you sure the users said that? Or are you sure that that's what they meant? I'm curious if you can comment on on just how how do you how do you manage internal stakeholders while you're when you're doing this kind of testing because they have a lot of skin in the game more than you do. Where I've seen the greatest change because like in my days at Marriott we would have knockdown dragout fights with engineers or other you know more say executive stakeholders and I, I call that sort of the opinion wars. Um, and uh, they were uh, extraordinarily painful. The, the tools that we now have, the, the methods and the tools that we now have available give you, um, I can't quite guarantee that they're going to win the day, but they come pretty close uh, in that they are so powerful and they've lowered, they've made it so easy to share uh, things with your stakeholders that um, we have seen um, real changes and and improvements like, okay, we tested this hypothesis, here's what we heard. Or um, in the case, Scott, you'll recall with uh, Carfax total loss valuation, they were making a really smart move into a new area, brand new product. Mm-hmm. And they offered in a certain critical area, They offered a certain level of functionality. And what our research found is that here's a target you need to hit because your competitors or soon to be your competitors are already here. That wasn't a welcome message. Um, And and for a while they were dubious. And then, but at the end, they changed their mind and they committed to to hitting that level of of functionality, building it. What, What changed their mind? It was the seeing the video clips, the video footage from the people who we interviewed. So they're not just hearing it from us, um, although they did notice our skill, uh, to be to be um, honest, at, at conducting the interviews and how we did it. They got you know a sense, okay, you really know how to do this. But my point here is, is they heard it straight from the users, and in my experience. And again, I both on the UX side and the product side, uh, just like Scott, I, I've spent many a painful hour in those kind of debates and discussions. And and my my strong advice, and we'll talk about the exact tools that we use. Um, if if Scott's sagacious insights have con- convinced you, yes, I really need to test the viability of my product. One of the greatest tools or assets that you will have is these is the video footage and it's very easy now we'll talk about the the tools it's very easy to create clips those are some of the most powerful assets you will have as a product owner manager cpo to to win those debates or put it or otherwise but put an end to those debates 
where if like you're you're building something for supply chain managers and you've got video footage from people who exactly match that profile and you're sh- and it's so easy now like a click you can share that with your stakeholders uh-huh. it cuts through a lot of the opinion wars like a knife where they're like okay now i understand why you're saying this feature is really compelling and these aren't because i heard it from them and it only took me 10 minutes you you spent 6 or 8 hours talking to them but by sharing these clips with me, I only need to spend six minutes. Mm. I am willing to spend six minutes to get those kind of insights. Um, so that is that is um, the first and foremost thing I would recommend. And we've seen it repeatedly, like in the case of Carfax, I knew for a fact that the senior most executive in the room was watching those videos. And I strongly suspect that's how we got to, to that outcome. So... Stephen, would you add anything to that? Yeah, no, I think it's important for uh, people on in the, on this industry to start um, understanding the motivators for executive. Uh, Jared Spool one mentioned that uh, there are only five things that executives care about, uh, and this is increasing revenues, decreasing costs, increasing uh, new business and market share, increasing the revenue from existing uh, customers, and increasing the shareholder value. And I think all of these answers will only be found in the market. Uh, I think it's difficult to let go uh, the old ways of thinking, uh, but falling behind can even it can be uh, more distressing. Um, and I think there is a quote that definitely changed my career, and is that there are no facts inside the building. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. why they need to go outside and, and see what's happening, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, we we interviewed. Uh, uh, Steve Blank, uh, Professor Steve Blank from uh, Stanford Business School, um, here uh, on one of our podcasts, and uh, that was that was one of his big contributions. And and he also invests only in founders who get out of their building and are talking to their target market um, directly, which is which is great. Um, but one of the things too that um, you know, Michael, like you know, the, the video asset is such a, a compelling piece for sort of making the case for why you deduced this from the research. But you can also, because of that, you now are no longer tied to, you know, the the lab time and and having those stakeholders be in the room with you. You you can debate what the users are really saying, what what those results mean. You can actually involve them in the the sausage making because, you know, getting the results from the interviews are they're they're not definitive. It's not like it's data driven design; it's data informed, right? So you you still have room for opinions, but now you're rooting those opinions in. We talk to real humans, and we had that we have that as input to the conversation. Is that is that right? I think I think I've, I know you you've used that before as well. Brought them into the what does this mean part of the analysis? There's actually one other thing to pick to tack onto our last uh, last thing we were talking about in terms of how um, these these video assets are so compelling. There's there's another thing too. It's sort of an IKEA effect that's been marvelous to see. Um, and also it's been really uh, noticeable where some stakeholders who originally were kind of like, yeah, this is stupid or I don't, you know, I think you're going in the wrong direction, whatever. They were negative, whatever form that may have taken. And by pulling them into the research, sharing the videos with them, taking them along for the ride, the journey, they, uh, they, they, they start to buy in a lot more. 
And yeah. for uh, you touched on this. Now they, they feel like, oh, well, now I understand how we got from these ideas and these hypotheses and pivoted and got from A to B. They get it. So they're really bought in. And they can, in our case, well, if they might say, hey, in the, I'm curious about X, Y, Z. Can you add a question to that in your next round of research? And usually we can say, sure, we can do that. And again, that, that co-ownership really helps. Um, it, it reduces the hostility or the, 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 the negativity it's and everyone all of a sudden kind of rowing in the same direction, which as a product owner, um, I would find fantastic. Um, okay, sorry. Coming back to your question about... Um, like how these tools enable us to do things differently from say back in the past. Um, one of the things that we don't do a whole lot anymore is um, use personas. So when I started in UX, that was a, you know, well, of course, you know, that's a critical artifact and so forth. It's a best practice. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. And um, it, we certainly use personas in the sense that, like for Trex, as one example, okay, there's two types of users that we are designing for. In that sense, yeah, but we didn't create a glossy, beautiful persona with all this info. Uh, and and this came out of discussion with two of my colleagues where I realized I haven't done personas for a couple of years now and no regret whatsoever. I, I, I would have felt it was time, you know, not well spent. Why? Uh, simple. The tools that we have now, in fact, these are the tool stack um, that we've used over the past couple of years, plus uh, in uh, Google Meet. Um, they make it so easy to, to talk to users that in the old days, it would be, okay, mirror, mirror on the wall. Maybe my persona's name was Sarah. Sarah, should would you be interested in this feature? Well, I don't do that anymore because I'm going to talk to Sarah next, you know, next Thursday. And so, uh, again, uh, we have such fantastic tools at our disposal now. They've they've really changed and, and tremendously elevated what we can do. The richness of feedback we can get. And I can speak to the tools we have here. Um, and, and by the way, can you take us through these tools. Um, yeah, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to add this just to talk to our attendees in terms of. Uh, okay, clearly I should be uh, testing the validity of my product. Where do I start? How do I go about it? What should I be doing and using? So we use, and delighted to recommend, uh, userinterviews.com. We use that platform for uh, recruiting or finding research participants um, for scheduling. It syncs with your calendar, so it's a breeze to schedule a sessions. That and used then, to take up so uh, much of our time. <laughs> And for compensating them, so they make all that easy as a as a as an unpaid for advertising. What I also love is in their pricing model, you don't pay. There's no cost to run to to do a, a recruit. So, for example, we were working with a NS2. They were going to do the recruiting. Um, they ran into some unanticipated difficulties. I said, you know what? I think we can. They were supply chain manager kind of people. I said, I think we can find them using user interviews. Launched a recruit. I think the following morning, I had twice as many qualified people that we would need to um, to go interview at no cost. Other than my time, no cost to do that. Uh, you only get you only um, they only charge you when you have completed a given interview. So great platform. We really like it. 
Um, we've used Lookback for several years. It's a cloud-based recording platform. Um, also, it makes it very easy to share uh, video content, video clips with users. We're not using it as much as we used to now that Google Meet has introduced a free recording feature. So in full disclosure, but Lookback uh, really elevated our game in terms of research. Um, just the, because it made it so easy to share the, the to record it, it's super reliable. Share it, make clips, all that um, really boosted our capabilities. A third tool that we're using a lot more now is Dovetail. Uh, Dovetail doesn't offer recording, but we can we can do that elsewhere. They not only enable you to do clips, but they are phenomenal. It's sort of bringing AI into distilling user research. Scott mm -hmm. has talked about you know the value you get with experienced researchers being able to distill everything that they heard and uh, read between the lines. Dovetail uh, lets you do tagging and all sorts of things. One of our senior researchers said on a research engagement, you know, this saved me a couple hours in terms of that distillation work and looking for patterns, uh, tagging. Can you say it also it, it does transcripts or is that is that a Google? Is that yes. a Google? Oh, yes. it does do. It, it, it generates great transcripts and then you can go in and tag them. And yes, that's precisely one wow. of the reasons why we adopted it. Yeah, the, the little bit of time I spent doing user testing myself as a product manager, right? Doing transcribing the transcripts was hours of time. I crazy. Yep. Stephen, Stephen, are there other tools that um, beyond these that you've used that that you recommend as well? I think something really important about Dovetail is that it creates transcripts on multiple languages, which is incredibly mm. useful for us. Uh, because we offer global services, uh, but there are many other tools. There are Mito who which is really great uh, for whiteboarding uh, and for bringing people together. Uh, to which one is that? Uh, Miro. Oh, Miro. Uh, yeah. Famous yeah. painter, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's also Figma. Figma revolutionized the whole game. Uh, they introduced FigJam, which is the competitor to, Fig, uh, to Miro. And it's really great for that, for bringing people together to have a shared vision. I think that's crucial especially in innovation cycles, my head can have a differing understanding from what you or Michael already have in their heads. Uh, and I think this is something really uh, that always happens, that people get to understand, okay, I was thinking something completely different, uh, but these kind of tools help you to, to do that. Uh, there's also Ambition. Uh, they are releasing a bunch of new products. Uh, and there are uh, blogs like uh, products.com that help you to understand and to uh, stay up to date with the latest and greatest. Yeah. And G G2.com, I'll make a plug for them. I've used them a bunch to evaluate, to understand the different nuances of tools and get some user user reviews and so forth. Um, so that can be a great resource. Let's let's turn over to techniques because, um, you know, tool stack and techniques were, were uh, the two high interest areas. Patterns and anti-patterns, do's and don'ts. Michael, why don't you, uh, you get us started on this? Sure. So the, the manner in which you conduct the interviews and discussions with users is very important. Um, you want it to be to feel like a conversation, not an interrogation. For example, we really never want to have more than two people conducting the interview. Um, the tone you want to keep very friendly, pleasant neutral. 
um, uh, not judgmental. So, uh, you know, I might say, well, um, Stephen, would you please tell me, what are your impressions of this screen? Um, you, you really want to avoid leading questions. So I wouldn't want to say, well, hey, Stephen, you know, the screen looks pretty good, wouldn't you say? Um, uh, what I will do if you, if you get a little tired of constantly saying, well, Stephen, what are your impressions of this screen? I would also, uh, I would give examples of really ranging from really bad to really good. Like, hey, Scout, you know, what do you think of this screen? Like, you know, kind of cluttered and confusing or, you know, very clean and easy to navigate. The reason I do that is by, by giving him those two extremes, I'm, I'm signaling like, hey, anything, anything in that range is, is totally fine. Um, and um, other techniques uh, are uh, you, if you, if you're, if you're exploring, uh, you might say, hey, if you click on this link, what might you expect to see? Don't do that after you've shown it. I want to ask Scott beforehand because there's a strong tendency if I show it to him, he say, oh, yeah, sure. That's what I thought I would see. Uh -huh. um, a lot more to talk about uh, there. That uh, could probably be its own webinar. But in general, you want to strive for a friendly, non-judgmental um, you know, environment tone. In terms of the artifacts. Uh, and and, and Michael, just to double down on that, like I, I definitely found a lot of value even when I was um, participating in tests. If I was the, you know, the co-pilot, the number two in that room, that you know, I, I really found value in in the way that researchers would frame questions because you're really mining for their mental model, not trying to push or sell your idea. Um, as right. a product person, I'm always trying to sell something. So it was really helpful having somebody that's not wedded to the answer. Um, you know, right. I, I'm sitting there like really wanting a particular answer, but um, yeah, no, absolutely. You really want it to be just, hey, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I we once did a test, a dry run interview with LiveX, and the participants' feedback was it was therapeutic. If you can achieve achieve that, like you nailed it, just where it's really relaxing and. I wasn't judging him. It was just like, hey, Scott, tell me, you know, what's what's important to you? What, what are you trying to get done here? Um, that's what you want to shoot for. In terms of the artifacts, I think Scott touched on this. Don't feel that you um, always need to do what we, in our jargon, high fidelity, which is full color, pixel perfect, in, especially when you're testing basic viability it doesn't need to look like that. And then it, it, if you use low fidelity pen and paper sketches, they're generally tremendously effective. They're very fun. Um, and they will get you the answers that you want in far, far less time. The making it beautiful part is usually going to, what's the sense of making something beautiful if you don't know yet if it's commercially viable? You know, so spend time on what's most important and then, Typically, we would then gradually move towards a higher fidelity. We talked about the results um, and the great tools that we have, like Dovetail with its transcript ability and tagging and all that will let you pull together your findings much faster. And I'll put in one more plug, last one, I promise. Those videos and the video clips are what uh, are real game changers, where, where now these stakeholders who in the old days would have hearing it's just from you, um, now you can pull in the very people that you want to sell this product to design it for. Okay. Don't take it just from me, hear it from them. And that, that is, uh, extraordinarily powerful and compelling information. 
And it's now super easy for you to share that with, uh, with a mouse click. So, um, yeah, put, put that to great use for yourself. Scott, uh, those are my thoughts. Stephen, um, I, we're, we're unfortunately at, um, at time, uh, anything you'd want to add quickly before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think Michael did a great job, uh, putting everything together. So nothing. Excellent. I apologize. Uh, we, we ran a little bit longer than we had hoped, um, but obviously a topic we're very passionate about. Um, thank you again, everyone, for, for joining. Um, we will uh, follow up and answer any questions uh, that you submitted. Um, and just wanted to say thank you again and happy testing. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from 3Pillar Global. 3Pillar is a digital product development and innovation partner that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about 3Pillar Global and how we can help you, visit our website at 3PillarGlobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.